0: So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 1. So Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as you lead us into all truth, we avail our hearts to receive from you. We thank you for the timeliness of this verse as we are studying your word, as we're going through it systematically, and we're so grateful that you would orchestrate through your control of time and space, and all those things that we would be blessed today to receive all you'd have for us. So cause us to come alive, and we thank you for all you're going to do, and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. So this uh, this story is covered in three of the four gospel accounts. It's in Mark and also in Luke. And uh, Mark is Peter's account. Mark wrote down Peter's account of um, of this event. And it's interesting because Peter's account adds something that Matthew doesn't. And Luke adds some things that Mark and Matthew don't add. And as we see this... Uh, we we learn from the other gospel accounts that there are four men there are four men that are bringing their friend who's a paralytic now the word paralytic means paralysis we don't know if it's through disease like cerebral palsy we don't know if it's a result of an accident we don't know if he was born that way we're not sure what it entails but we do know that he's completely paralyzed in the sense that he's on a bed he can't move the the scripture points out that he's not sitting up he's lying down on this bed as an invalid and he requires the assistance of his four friends and and in this account it says that they brought this paralytic lying on a bed the other account says that the place where they brought him was so packed it's estimated there was over 10,000 people and they're descending upon a house we believe it to be Peter's house because Peter takes so much time in the book of Mark to describe what they did to his roof, uh, and I'll share with you in a moment about that. But as they approach the house, it is completely packed, 10,000 people packed into a house, and we find from the other accounts that the people in the front row are the doctors of theology, the scribes, the Pharisees. They're all in the front row, and they've gathered from from Jerusalem and from Galilee, from the entire region. They've traveled down from Jerusalem because... The offering was given. Remember when when the leper was healed, uh, this is the first time in the history of Israel that a leper had been healed and the offering had been given. So the priest was amazed and and everyone else is amazed. And so these, these lawyers, these doctors of theology, these scribes who are meticulous in writing down every aspect of it, they were the copy machines of the day. They've gathered, they're in the front row. Mark points out that Jesus is preaching the word. He's teaching. He's going through a text. He's not, now granted, when Jesus speaks, he is the embodiment of the word. He's the alpha and the omega, the entire alphabet of God. But in this case, he's referring to scriptures that they had in hand. So he's teaching from the Old Testament. And they're sitting in the front row, and they're ready to see if he's out of line in any way, shape, or form. And they're rightly dividing the word of truth. Second 2 Timothy two fifteen. They've studied to show themselves approved unto God. Workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And they are ready as Bereans to see if he is an er- if he's errant in any way, and they are going to note it. And they want to catch this guy because he's fulfilling all these messianic prophecies, and he's got a crowd following him. And it's amazing what's taking place. And they're they're just in the front row. And the rest of the folks have packed the house because they want a healing because Jesus has healed so many people. He's calmed the storm. He has power over the physical world. He has power over illness. He has power over demonic oppression. He's got power, and they're all there wanting to to get this resolved. And so the house is packed. People, the, the windows are packed. Outside the house is packed. And these four friends, which tells me, I don't think the man was born a paralytic, although it's possible, I think that he had developed these friendships and something happened, a disease had affected him. But he's got four friends, and these are amazing friends. They run to the house, they say, we're going to go take you to the Nazarene. Yeah, I've heard of the Nazarene. And growing up, my mother had a very dear friend that, that we would visit every week, typically on Sundays. Her name was Harriet Neal, and she had cerebral palsy. And she was she was old, and, and she had outlived you know what a typical person with cerebral palsy would live and she was an amazing woman she accomplished great things she loved the lord my mom didn't know the lord at the time and harriet was instrumental in my mother's coming to faith and harriet her, her body was atrophied and the cerebral palsy had, had taken hold and, and and my mother would make me talk with her i'd say hi hi mrs neal and my mom should call her Harriet. Hi, Harriet. And I turned to my mom. I don't know what she's saying. My mom said she says it's nice to meet you too. Is this another language or something? I'm not sure. And my mother was unbelievably gifted at understanding Harriet. And Harriet would talk, and I, I mom, I don't understand. She says she wants to know how your day was. And, and visit after visit, I got to a place where I completely understood Harriet. And I knew what she was saying. And she was articulate, and she was funny. She was so funny. She'd tell a joke, and it would, it, I'd giggle. And I'm looking at her, and she'd laugh. And she was surrounded by friends. She was involved in the community. She was instrumental in, in the cerebral palsy association, and I, I, I was deeply touched, and my mother was too. And my life was richer and fuller for having known her. And I remember when she passed, my mother wept. I remember, we were all, we were all choked up. Sweet, sweet woman. And and this story for me takes me to to Harriet. Only the friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Harriet brought my mother to the Lord. And and seeing this picture of these four men, they go and they grab their friend and they say, "We're going to go see the Nazarene." And their friend, ah, "No, no." And he's he's paralyzed whether it's physically, emotionally or spiritually. He, he has to rely on them to bathe him and, and to clean him and all the things necessary and to feed him. And now they're taking him and he's going to be embarrassed and they run up to the, to the house and it's packed and people are going, Get, you should have gotten here earlier. I've got a hangnail. I'm not giving my spot to you. And, and then it's, it's like trying to bring someone to church and you, you meet someone and go, I've go, this is my seat. My family sits here. You're feeling it, aren't you? And and nobody's moving, and, and the, the, the doctors of theology and the scribes are all in the front row. They're not giving up their seat, and they can't get in the house they can't get in the window. They can't even get at eyesight. They can't, they can't even do, they, not even eyes to look at them. They're just doing anything they can, and they're trying to figure this out. And the four friends, as, as Jesus had spoken, he says, in the end times, if you're on the rooftop, and he, he's speaking of rooftops, when we go to Israel, you're going to see that people use their rooftops in the summer. It's hot, and that's where they go to cool down. That's where the family gathers in the, in the, for the cool of the evening because the house is so unbe- unbearable. And they often sleep on the roof. And, and Josephus speaks about the, the road of roofs, that they'd be connected, and you could travel across the roofs one to another. So they calculate, and they think, well, we can't get in the door. We can't get through the windows. We can't even see them. It's packed. Nobody's on the roof. So they start running up there, and you can imagine the poor guy, and they're going up the stairs, boom, 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 boom. And and they run across the roofs, and they get over there, and you can just imagine them calculating, just going, "Okay, so this is a layout of the building." And as I think he's probably speaking, and that, so we'll, and then X marks a spot right here, and Mark points out that they start to tear the roof apart. Mark's Peter's account, and Peter's like they're tearing my roof apart. Luke points out that they're removing tiles. I mean, they're going to town on this thing, and all of a sudden you just see fingers poking through the hole, dust coming down. Jesus is 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 preaching the word. And dust starts falling, and the hole opens up. And I, I can tell you exactly what happened, because I see it every Sunday. Anyone in the, in the service who gets up and moves, it, you're not listening to me anymore. You're just watching the person walk. It's like, ah. and then somebody moves, their, ah. and, and Jesus is speaking, and they're, ah. and they're tearing the roof apart, and they're just looking up there, and, 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 and Jesus knows. He's just looking, and the ceiling's open. And they probably open it up over here, and they looked in. They go, oh, wrong area. And they come over here and, they re- you know, calibrate. And then now they're doing it again. And, and he's on a gurney, so they, they've got to get a wide hole, unless they're going to put him down this way and then drop him this way and then bring it down. And, and that takes a lot of engineering skills as well. But they open up the roof, tear it apart. Peter's like, what the heck, man? So unorthodox, so outside the box, so not Right. And they start to lower him and they're like mm-hmm. he's like huh huh huh. And everybody's watching mm-hmm. and he's seeing everybody going mm-hmm. and the scribes, Oh, this is not good. This is mm-hmm. Yeah. And the poor guy's laid at Jesus' feet, and he's like right? And and I love the response in the scriptures. Jesus says three things to him. The first is he says, son, which is technon. It's, a, it's an endearing term. It's almost like my child. It's what you call an endearing term to one of your little ones. He just said, hey, son. It's an endearing term of a father to a child, son. And it says, be of good cheer. It's not like, hey, chip her up. Stay on the sunny side, always on this. It's not that. It's not an exhortation. It's more informative. He just, he looks at him. And the interpretation in the Greek is, son, it's going to be all right. Son, you have nothing to be afraid of. And he's probably locking eyes with him because you know that he's paralyzed, not only physically, but emotionally. As everybody's looking at him, he has no ability. He's completely humiliated. And he's probably been telling his friends all the way, no, 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 no. And he just says, son, it's going to be all right. You don't have anything to be afraid of. It's Okay. And he, he locks eyes with him, and he comforts him. And then he says these words to him. It's the second statement that Jesus makes to this man. He says, your sins are forgiven you. I can imagine the guys on the roof going, not why we came. And changing him and cleaning him, and sins aren't the big issue here. Do something like you did with the hoopty guy over there in the Gadarenes. Fix this here, will you? He says, your sins are forgiven you. Immediately the scribes, the doctors of theology say, he blasphemes. And the other account says in both Mark and Luke, it says, only God can forgive sins. Well, they were wrong and they were right. Only God can forgive sins. But he wasn't blaspheming. He was God and is God and will always be God. Now, that being said, now we got a problem. And this is where I take into account my brother and my my probably one of my best friends, Brad, Brad Cummings. I've come to deeply love him and appreciate the gift God's given him. And I think this is a gift from the Lord to me if not for any of you. So if you'll just be patient with me while I indulge myself. There's a couple of things in this story that kind of catch me off guard. One is, Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven you. Well, excuse me. I read Matthew's account, I read Mark's account, and I read Luke's account. And in none of those accounts did the paralytic say, will you forgive me? Another part I have a struggle with is he forgives him his sins, but Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. I don't know the man's heart. I don't know his faith. I don't know his repentant nature. Repent. Confess. I don't know that. It doesn't say that. I know the scribes in the front are accurate in the sense that only God can forgive sins. They're wrong in the fact that they're saying he blasphemes. There's a lot of theological questions I have here. I'm troubled by it. But the part that gets me is... When they say this man blasphemes, at once they said it. This man blasphemes. They have no concern over the man. They they, they don't hear the tenderness of Jesus' voice. They didn't hear what he said. And the most amazing thing about Christianity, most amazing thing about Christianity, is we have a God who forgives sins. So I don't need to be forgiven. Oh, yes, you do. It's against God and God alone that we've sinned and done this evil in His sight. You see, sin, and we hate the term sin, I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it a thousand more until everyone's heard. It's an archer's term, bullseye, where your arrow lands. This is called the sin distance, how far the arrow's fallen from perfection. Every religion in the world is is we're trying to get a better shot. We're trying to appease a capricious God. We're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to get a bullseye. And all have sinned and fallen short. We never hit the bullseye. I swear to God, I'll never do it again. I do it again. Those things I don't want to do, those I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I miss, I miss, I miss, I miss. And every religion fails and fails and fails. Trying to earn his favor. Trying to obtain perfection. Perfection. In Christianity, God forgives us and moves the bullseye to where the arrow is. He puts his righteousness on our account. He imputes his righteousness. He's cast my sins as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. He's cleansed me of all unrighteousness. I'm a new creature in Christ, it says in, in Corinthians. I don't earn it, he gave it. I'm leaning in at, in Lamb of God and I'm saying, to Tetelestai, it is finished. It's paid for. The dot's been moved. The bullseye is here. I'm contending for the faith in a tender, loving manner with my friend. While the scribes in the front row say, what is he doing in a Mormon event? And in the process... Why is he at the Canyon Club? What's he doing at the community center? Why isn't he in church? I get that. But the part that comforted me as I indulged myself is that in the midst of it, Jesus says, knowing their thoughts, and he read their thoughts, he says, why do you think evil in your hearts, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? They had watched people perform miracles. They knew Moses. They knew Elijah. They knew Elisha. They knew miracles could be done by man, but the forgiveness of sins was God alone. And God is, com- is merciful, but he's completely just. And if he's going to forgive sins, somebody's got to pay. The Bible says a wages of sin is death. I remember when I was a young boy throwing the ball against a wall in my neighbor's house on their garage, and I was practicing for Little League, there was a window to the right but i didn't have to worry about that until i tried to practice a curveball and the thing went right through the window and i ran into the house and the man next door the gallards they were very wealthy i thought they can pay for their own window my dad a poor naval officer the gallard mr gallard comes next door knocks on the door my dad answers it He says, captain or actually time commander mccoy Your son broke my window. I can pay for it. That's not a problem. But this is the third time it's been broken. I didn't do it the first two times. He says, and I I replace it. He said, nobody's going to learn a lesson. He said, the boy has to pay for what he's done. You see, the window's broken. Somebody's got to pay. It's going to cost somebody something. Why not the one responsible for breaking it? Me. I didn't have the wherewithal to pay. My father paid for it. He interceded and paid the penalty. A debt I could never pay. Maybe someday in my life, but not at the moment. You see, when there's been an injustice, somebody has to pay. The wages of sin is death. Christ came to die for a sinner such as I. To pay the penalty for the sin I committed that he never did. He was a sinless lamb. Slaughtered for my sake. He died to pay the penalty for my failure. His righteousness, his blood atoned, covered my sin, paid for it. To die paid in full. To die it is finished. he said on the cross. I whispered that to my Mormon friend. To die it is finished. Atoned for, paid for. He moved the bullseye to where I am. I've received that by faith. You see, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven you because that means you have to pay for it. And Jesus stated this, and they used a term, son of man. He used a term of himself. And when he used the term son of man, never before quoted until now, this is out of Daniel chapter seven. This is this is a testimony that he is the Messiah. Nobody uses that term. Who are you to use that? And he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So that you know that the Son of Man has power on the earth. You see, we're on the earth for one reason, to be reconciled to God, to be reconnected with God. Reconciliation. There's enmity between God and man, and it has to be resolved. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, to reconcile sinful man to a holy God, to pay the penalty. And as he he described this, he says that the Son of Man has power on the earth. You're on this earth, and there is no, no purgatory. There's no baptism of the dead. On this earth, we must receive that forgiveness. And every man is without excuse because we know that we're sinners. We know that we fall short. We know that we fail. And we can try to earn God's favor by keep shooting at the target and keep missing. Or we can realize that God moved the bullseye and we receive it by faith. And that's the love of God. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to forgive the world. And this is the beauty of Christianity, and he declares this, and he says that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on the earth. He turns to the paralytic, and he says, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. I saw Harriet Neal, and I remember, you know, you talk about atrophy of muscles. Harriet had no muscles. Her legs were just sticks as were arms. And when I had blown out a disc in my L4, L5, L5, S1, my left leg to this day on the left side of my shin, you can kick me, pour hot water on, I can't feel it. And my, th- this area of my leg, it atrophied till I had the surgery. And this leg was immensely skinnier than my right leg. I looked silly. It took me a while through therapy to bring it back. And this man's paralyzed, atrophy. And when he says arise, Take up your bed and walk. Goes, go to therapy. It'll take a few weeks. No, 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 no. Up. Oh. When he said, "Yahir wa Yahir," light be light was. Nilo, uh, when he we we out of nothing, bara. He created. Peace be still, and the storm was calmed. And he says to him, "Arise, take up your bed and walk." Immediately. <laughs> and I think in addition to his body healing God gave him an accent look at my pecs and my deltoids and my, I've gotten these are strong right here I'm going home to show my family that I've gotten very huge and the delts here I look like a V coming home make the door bigger as I come through I open it very carefully I say hey I'm home everybody look at me I added that. <laughs> but he, Jesus said, make sure you take up your bed. Carry that so everyone sees this instrument of your paralysis. He walks through with his bed. Not a problem. I can carry it now because I'm buff. And look at me. Hey, everybody. Get to the chopper. I added that too. And he arose and he departed to his house. He arose and departed to his house. And then it says, The multitude saw it, and they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. The other passage says that when these four men lowered their friend through the roof, Jesus looked up at them, and he said, Your faith has healed this man. I had people all week pray for my, my right ear. It's still not healed. <laughs> you guys need work. <laughs> and I love it when people say, you don't have enough faith, and that's why you're not healed. And I always respond with this text, well, then, how about your faith? Because theirs healed him. Why can't yours heal mine? Is there a possibility that God wants me to have this for a season? Because I'll tell you what's happened in this last week. I've really come to appreciate that, which I used to take for granted. amazing how God gives you a love for life. Everything's new. He says, your faith has healed this man. And I think about the scribes, the doctors of theology in the front row. I think about these knuckleheads up here tearing open Peter's roof. Both are wrong. And both are right. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And they're wanting to bring their friend to Jesus, no matter what they need to do. The way they did it, (laughs) Peter wasn't thrilled, right? I look at the four friends as my friend Brad. And I guess the question for all of us in the text is, to what length would you go To bring your friend to Jesus. And I want you to think about a friend who's completely paralyzed, whether emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Those are tough ones to get to Jesus. You've got to get through crowds, you've got to get through hindrances, you've got to get through roadblocks, you gotta get through barriers, you gotta get through judgment, you gotta get through roofs. You gotta, you gotta rip the roof off of orthodoxy in a sense and don't don't overread that one you got to rip the roof off of preconceived notions and and let's say the paralysis is is emotional that that somebody was beaten by their dad and can't get a picture of Christ so you use you you, you, you use a a parable an allegory I mean, one of the best-selling books in the history of the world, of course, the Bible, but one of the second best-selling books is The Pilgrim's Progress. That's an allegory. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe describing Jesus, and all of these, and you look at it, and the slow of despair and despondency and all these things that Bunyan put together, and you think, probably in his time, they're going, oh, this is heretic. It's wrong. God the Father is a black woman? Well, to somebody who's been beaten by their dad, the only love of Christ they've ever known, rip the roof off of preconceived notions. The thing I love about Brad is his heart. He wants to do anything he can to get his friends to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you bypass the word. There's a tension and a balance that's so necessary, especially as you tether into these other areas of cultural influence, whether it's arts and entertainment or media or politics, or right? Religion, our, our, our currency and the mountain of influence of religion is, is truth, and we tend to insulate ourselves with truth as opposed to tether out into these other communities to transform them. And so when someone looks at a pastor who's supposed to be insulated by truth, tethering into the canyon club, tethering into the Lamb of God with the Mormons, tethering into a community center when he should be preaching in church, ah, it's ripping the roof off a couple of things. It stretches us. We get it wrong. We get it right. I want people to come to Christ, not at the expense of truth, but the exercise of it and the emphasis of it. And I look at somebody like my 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 brother, Brad. If he's to err, he errs on the side of the love of the Father to remove the wrath of the Father. And even there, I don't even think he's guilty of it. I just think he emphasizes something that the world doesn't tend to emphasize. And I'll tell you why he emphasizes this. is because in a culture of millennials that have been raised with this idea that you judge not lest you be judged and there's no judgment, they're all paralyzed with what they've been inculcated with. And he creates an allegory to be able to touch the hearts of those that never quite grasp that. And that's a starting point. That's a starting point that draws us in. I I was thinking in relation to all this, Corinthians, Brad had pointed out that God is is not schizophrenic, that that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And I think that's a pretty good picture. But in the same regard, the passage that was quoted in, in 2 Corinthians 5, it begins by saying, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He is a God of judgment and wrath. But that's not something everyone's ready to receive. They don't understand that completely. You have to do addition and subtraction before you get to multiplication and division. And to get to this place, you know God in a deeper way like Harriet Neal. The Scripture goes on to say, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people to the Lord, helping them understand that the bullseye needs to be moved. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, what's important about that, and I like what one author writes, he says, if we are in Christ, God makes our pain a channel of his grace to bring about a deeper trusting and delighting in him. We tend to see pain through our own eyes. We want to understand it, But pain is a gift from God that nobody wants to receive, and it's deeper than we have imagined. And in the shack, it's a beginning lesson in pain, and it allows people an access that I appreciate as as Brad lowers them through the roof. I like what this author says. Without answering all of our questions about pain in detail, we learn that God is greater, and his purpose is more mysterious and wiser than we can fathom, and that pain, in his good providence and plan, is his strange grace to draw us to him and not simply a question requiring an answer on our own terms. And you look at the book of Job. This is a tough one, and it's the oldest book of the Bible. This is a man who lost his family, who lost his business, who lost his house, who lost everything but his nagging wife. And God did it. God did it. And, and, and in Job chapter 2, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. What a neat woman. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. God gives us challenges. Harriet Neal will tell you that she's okay with what God gave him or gave her. It was an instrument to lead my mother to Christ, to have a profound influence in my own life. Job wrote in Job 42, I know that you can do everything, God, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. He also says in verse 11 of chapter 42, The passage reads, Then all his brothers, all of his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. He was restored. He got all of his wealth back, but he still had the memories of the loss. And God had allowed that. Job didn't have the book. He didn't know the end. He went through all of that and trusted God through the pain as Harriet did through the entirety of her life. This is a beginning point. I'll do whatever I can to put people at the feet of Jesus. I want to bring them to you. I'll rip the roof off of of whatever your preconceived notion is. And and, and if you want to sit in the front row and pick fly poop out of pepper, do it. But I'm going to get my friend to Jesus. And while the world just, just, just dissects the movie millions are being laid at the feet of Jesus. And the paralysis of of whatever, emotional paralysis, whatever it is, they're being lowered. And Jesus is looking and he just says, child, it's going to be all right. I'm going to work through this. And all they wanted to do was get their friend to Jesus. I'll close in these moments with the concern of universalism. I didn't do this first service, but I felt compelled to do it this service. I don't know why. Universalism is a doctrine that teaches all people will be saved. My Mormon friends believe that. The main argument of universalism is that a good and loving God would not condemn people to eternal torment in hell. Some universalists believe that after a certain cleansing period, God will free the inhabitants of hell and reconcile them to himself. Others say that after death, people will have another opportunity to choose God. But Jesus says so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on the earth. Not in purgatory. Not by baptism of the dead. For some who adhere to uh, universalism, the doctrine also implies that there are many ways to get to heaven. They apply passages like Acts 3.21. Uh, it says, Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration for all, of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. They use Colossians one twenty And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. They use Romans 5.18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous acts, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. They also use 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that god may be all in all but it's interesting uh it runs counter to the entirety the whole counsel of god's word and the teaching that the bible says that you must call upon the name of the lord to be united to christ and eternally saved not all men in general are saved Jesus taught these things Matthew 10 we'll get to this chapter soon Matthew 10:28 Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him himself Jesus who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell No one spoke more of hell than Jesus He didn't want anyone to go there Matthew 23:33 Serpents brood of vipers how can you escape the condemnation of hell as he's speaking to these doctors of theology matthew twenty five forty six and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life these are jesus 's words luke sixteen twenty three and being in torment in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus was in his bosom and We see that story about Lazarus and the rich man john three thirty six we love John uh, 3:16 but John 3:36 he who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him. And so we're left at a place where we struggle with it. I like what this author says. He says universalism focuses exclusively on god's love and mercy and ignores his justice and wrath. It also assumes that god's love depends on what he does for humanity rather than being self-existing uh, attribute of god present from eternity. Before man was created. Desiring to focus on the rosy optimism of the universal perfection of man, sin is, for the most part, an irrelevancy. Sin is minimized and trivialized in an all universal, universal, universalistic teaching. Universalism was taught by Origen in 185. Uh, he lived from 185 to 254, but was declared heresy at the Council of Constantinople in 543. This one author says that one reason for the resurgence of universalism in the current attitude that we should not be judgmental of any religion, idea, or person by refusing to call anything right or wrong, universalists not only cancel the need for Christ's redeeming sacrifice, but also ignore the consequences of unrepented sin. And and I understand this culture struggles with judgment. And that's what's so spectacular about the shack is it's right on the edge and they rip the roof off. You're like, that's my roof. But it's an access point to bring him to Jesus. I marvel at that allegory as I did with, with Pilgrim's Progress. And I, I look at this and I think to myself, to what extent will we go to bring someone to Christ? If you want to sit in the front row and be upset that your pastor was at the Canyon Club or at a Mormon event or ditching church on a Sunday to be at a community center, Okay. Okay. If you want to sit in the front row and condemn my friend, okay. okay. But I'm moved by people ripping off the roof of our preconceived notions on how to get people to Christ. I don't compromise the truth. I seek to exercise it. And I will fail. But don't spend your life solely in the front row judging me. You go find your friends and get them to Jesus. And we're all going to be so busy, we won't be picking fly poop out of pepper. Now, I love the Word, and I will continue to strive to rightly divide it. And from that foundation, we will tether into these other cultures and make an influence. But if you want to find a loose thread in my life, it won't be hard. And if you want to pull on it and you think that that's productive, you go ahead. But in the meantime, I'm thinking, I can think of a grip of people that are paralyzed right now. And I want to do anything I can to get them to the Lord. And I'll sit with them in a Mormon event and I'll sit with them at the Canyon Club and I'll sit with them at the community center. And one of the greatest for me was sitting across from my sister. We had dinner Saturday night. I knew the Lord wanted me there because my ear was just pounding. And I had to lean in. And she said things to insult me and try to bait me. You can't insult a dead man. I just kept loving on her, loving on her. I watched her soften. I think we can all do that. I think that's the joy of the text. And don't despise the pain. Jesus wanted to celebrate the pain as he had the man carry his gurney. And Harriet Neal didn't despise the pain, she embraced it. God's deeper than all of it. This is the start. But a life like Harriet's is going deep. And I'll tell you what, God's as faithful when you first get lowered through the roof as he is when you've lived your entire life with cerebral palsy. And he will show himself deep and faithful and loving. Trust him. And do whatever you can to bring people to him. Because this is the hope for all mankind. May God bless you, strengthen you, rip the roof off it in Jesus name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness through the text to just touch our lives and to realize, Lord, that we're either in the front row or on the roof and we all have a role. And the tension in the body of Christ is to not to be insulated by truth, but not to just go around just tearing roofs off for no reason, but there's a balance in it all. In the center between the men in the front row and the fellows on the roof is Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are the center theme and you're the one who forgives sins. And there's much we don't understand and there's questions that we have. But if we can get people to you in spite of their paralysis, God, you do an amazing work and you just blow the minds of those who witness that work. And I'm so grateful for the way in which you use us, folks like Harriet. God, thank you for pain. And I know that's a strange thing to thank you for, but it's in that that we have the stories of life that touch us so deeply and bring people to Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd minister and touch lives and help us to lower our friends at your feet do whatever it takes to bring them to you. God, thank you for your word today, and we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.